U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined, as always, by my stalwart XO, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. So, we are going to continue on our overview of the Mexican-American War. So, shall we get underway? Let's cast off. So now we're going to get into Scott's Mexico campaign, Mexico City campaign, actually. So President Polk decides to not reinforce Tyler's army to allow him to continue to advance and instead sent a army under General Whitfield Scott, which he had them transported to the port of Veracruz by sea to begin an invasion of the Mexican heartland. On March 9th of 1847, he performed his first major amphibious landing in U.S. history. In preparation for the siege of Veracruz, he had 12,000 volunteer and regular soldiers, and he was able to successfully offload supplies, weapons, and horses near the walled city using specially designed landing craft. Was the port of Veracruz just relatively undefended? It was defended by around 3,400 men with mortars and naval guns. So it wasn't undefended, but they were able to come into this bay just south of the fort to do their landing. Then they moved inland a little bit and then came up on their flank for the attack. Uh, okay. So they found a landing site that was not defended by the fort. Right. Gotcha. Now, now there were some notable names that were with the Americans. They were Robert E. Lee, George Meade, Ulysses S. Grant, James Longstreet, and Thomas Stonewall Jackson. I'm sure we'll hear those names again in about mm, 15 years, give or take. Oh, yes. So, Commodore Perry used his naval guns to reduce the city walls and to harass the defenders. The city used its own artillery to attempt to repulse his naval forces, but the effect on the extended barrage destroyed the will of the Mexican side to fight against a obviously numerically superior force, and they surrendered after 12 days. Well, and you mentioned it towards the end of uh, last episode how the Mexican army was made up almost entirely of conscripts who, for lack of a better comparison, were told at gunpoint, fight or else. Yeah, they didn't get paid, they got crapped on by everybody above them. It was not good. But they did hold out 12 days. I mean, so... There you go with that. Yeah. Uh, casualties were 80 on the U.S. side and 180 on the Mexican side. About half of them were civilians. No. And during the siege, the U.S. also started to fall victim to yellow fever. Ugh. Yeah. But after they took the city or the fort... Scott then marches west towards Mexico City with 8,500 healthy troops, while Santa Ana sets up a defensive position in a canyon around the main road about halfway 
from the fort to Mexico City. Near Cerro Gordo, Santa Ana entrenches about 12,000 troops and artillery and had everybody trained on the road because that's where he thought Scott would appear. So he was planning an ambush of 12,000 men against Scott's 8,500. I mean... Solid plan, and he's actually taking time to train his troops, so he's not being a total idiot. Now, Scott sends 2,600 dragoons ahead of the main column, and the Mexican artillery sees them and immediately opens fire, which reveals their position. And since this is not Scott's main force, you know, now Scott knows where they are. Yeah. So, Scott abandons the main road. He's like, no, that's suicide going up that way. Mm-hmm. And so they go through some rough terrain north of that position. He then sets his artillery up on high ground and flanks the Mexicans. Now, Santa Ana is aware of the positions of the U.S. troops, but they were not prepared for the onslaught that followed. The 12,000 troop army was routed by the U.S. Army, and the Americans suffered 400 casualties, while the Mexicans suffered 1,000 casualties and 3,000 taken prisoner. That, wow. A full third of the army dead or captured. That is... Yeah. Not great performance. Yeah, I mean, well, Santa Ana only had one victory, and that was the Alamo. After that, he's always had his butt handed to him. You wonder why he kept he, he kept being a general. I don't know. Maybe he had really fancy shoulder frocks. And maybe it was just, maybe he had a good personality that just made people want to follow him. And you know, then there's all the betrayals. We do have a account from Captain Kirby Smith of this battle. And it says, quote, They can do nothing, and their continued defeats should convince them of it. They have lost six great battles. We have captured 608 cannon, nearly 100,000 stands of arms, made 20,000 prisoners, have the greatest portion of their country, and are fast advancing on their capital which must be ours. Yet, they refuse to treat, a.k.a. negotiate terms of surrender. So in May, Scott pushes on to Puebla, which is the second largest city in Mexico. And because of the civilians' hostility to Santa Ana, surprise, surprise, they take the city without any resistance on May 1st. Oh, you're here to get rid of that jerk? Come on in. Pretty much. So Scott gathers supplies and reinforcements there at Puebla and sent back units whose enlistments had expired, which was really cool of him. He's like, we're in war, but your enlistments expired. So if you want to go home, you can go home. Scott also made strong efforts to keep his troops disciplined and treat the civilian population that they had occupied nicely and justly. He did this for practical reasons, of course, to try to prevent a uprising against his army. But it's also just the 
right thing to do. Not being a jerk to civilians. That, on one hand, I hate that we have to... The, the bar is so low in this era that we have to applaud that. But at the same time, good on him for not being a jerk to civilians. Yeah, there's been so many commanders who were. And, you know... So good on this guy. So, at this time... Mexican guerrillas were harassing the lines of communication that Scott had back to Veracruz. So he decided not to weaken his army to defend the city and leaves only a garrison at Puebla to protect the sick and injured that were recovering there and advanced with the majority of his army onto Mexico City on August 7th. So there were a number of battles around the right flank of the city defenses. The Battle of Contreras and Churubusco, the Battle of Chupalupic, and after these, the fighting died down for a little bit and armistice was established for peace negotiations. Uh, but of course, it breaks down on September 6th. And then the Battle of Molino del Rey and a second battle of Chupoltec happens, and the storming of the city gates also happen, at which point the capital is occupied. And this catapulted Scott into American and national hero. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the first time that the American armed forces had captured a foreign capital. Yeah. I believe you are correct. And then Scott, after that, he becomes the military governor of occupied Mexico City. So Santa Ana makes one last attempt to defeat the Americans in September. He attempts to cut them off from the coast. He tries to take back Puebla with General Joaquin Rea. He puts Puebla under siege. Santa Ana joins him, but they fail to take it before a relief column arrives from Santa Cruz under Brigadier General Joseph Lane. So General Lane, he comes into the city October 12th after a battle with Santa Ana on October 9th at the Battle of Humanta, defeating Santa Ana. After he was defeated, a new government comes into power in Mexico, led by Manuel de la Peña y Peña. And he asks Santa Ana to turn over command of the army to General José Jacuín de Herrera. So after Scott secures the capital, he sends about a quarter of his troops to secure his line of communications to Veracruz because, you know, the Mexican guerrillas yeah. had been harassing it. And maintaining supply lines is incredibly important. He then strengthens the garrison at Puebla, and by November had added about 1,200 men to Jalapa and establishes a 750-man posts along the National Road between Mexico City and Puebla at Rio Frio. There's also one at Perot and San Juan, on the road between Jalapa and Puebla, and also he establishes another one at Puente Nacional between Japa and Veracruz. 
He also establishes an anti-guerrilla brigade under Brigadier General Joseph Lane to carry the war to the guerrillas. All right. He also ordered that convoys to be guarded by 1,300 men at all times. But despite all of this, the guerrilla raids on the American lines of communications continued until August. And then they stopped after the two countries signed a peace treaty and formal hostilities were secured. Well, it's about dang time. So the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is what ends the war. Now, of course, the Mexican army was outnumbered and many of the large cities of Mexico was occupied by American troops. So Mexico pretty much could not defend itself anymore. There was also a lot of internal divisions, as you can imagine. So this treaty was signed on February 2nd of 1848 by the American diplomat Nicholas Trist and the Mexican representatives Luis G. Cuevas, Bernardo Cuoto, and Miguel Astrian. And this ended the war. The treaty gave the U.S. undisputed control of Texas, establishes the U.S.-Mexican border of the Rio Grande, which was what the U.S. had stipulated as the border in the first place, and ceded to the United States pretty much California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. Well, I mean, it sounds like they made out the best possible way they could. They were only giving up territory that either already had been starting to leave or their uh, control of it was laughable at best, according to locals. Right. Uh, the U.S. did pay them $15 million in 1848 monies, which is about $497 million today which is less than half of the amount the Mexican government was offered before the whole fight started. And, and the U.S. agreed to assume $3.25 million, which is $88.5 million in today's money, in debts that the Mexican government owed to the U.S. citizens. Now, of course, the acquisition was a source of controversy, especially among politicians who had opposed the war in the first place. And a newspaper article from the Whig Intelligencer sarcastically concludes that, quote, we take nothing by conquest, thank God. <laughs> I mean, kind of true, because we did pay them. It isn't wartime conquest. No, heavens no. It's a business transaction. We'll just ignore the thousands that died before we made the purchase. <laughs> so Jefferson Davis introduces an amendment which gives the U.S. most of northeastern Mexico, which failed 44 to 11. The lands that were acquired west of the Rio Grande are traditionally called the Mexican Cessation, in the U.S. as opposed to the Texas annexation that happened two years earlier. 
though division of New Mexico down the middle at the Rio Grande never had any basis either in control or Mexican boundaries. Mexico never recognized the independence of Texas prior to the war and did not cede its claim to territory north of the Rio Grande or Gila River until this treaty happened. So before they ratified the treaty, the U.S. Senate made two modifications, changing the wording of Article 9, which guaranteed Mexicans living in the purchased territories the right to become U.S. citizens, and striking out Article 10, which ceded the legitimacy of land grants made by the Mexican government. So pretty much Article 9 means that, hey, even though you weren't born here in the United States and you didn't, you know, seek to come here as an immigrant, you know, now that where you're living is no longer Mexico, we'll give you U.S. citizenship and the rights that entails. Article 10 is uh, just saying, hey, if the, the country of Mexico gave you a land grant, uh, you're going to have to check that one past us again. Yeah, exactly. Hey, if you want to live here, if you want to keep living here, you're now an American. So they also agreed to a three-article protocol known as the Protocol of Quintero to explain the amendments. The first article claimed that the original Article 9 of the treaty would still confer the rights delineated in Article 9. The second article confirmed the legitimacy of land grants under Mexican law, and the protocol was signed in the city of Quintero by A.H. Severe, Nathan Clifford, and Louis de la Rosa. Now, Article 11 had a potential benefit to Mexico. This was that the U.S. pledged to suppress the Comanche and Apache raids that had ravaged North Mexico and pay restitutions to the victims of raids that it could not prevent. Huh. So these raids did not cease for several decades after the treaty, even though a cholera epidemic did reduce the numbers of the Comanche in 1849. Now, a guy named Robert Letcher, the U.S. minister to Mexico in 1850, was certain that, quote, the miserable 11th article would lead to the financial ruin of the U.S. if it could not be released from its obligations. So the U.S. was released from all obligations of Article 11 five years later by Article 2 of the Gadsden Purchase of 1853. So at the end of all of this, Mexican territory prior to Texas leaving, comprised almost 1.7 square miles and was reduced just under 800,000 by 1848. 1.7 million? Yep. Okay. 1.7 million to 800,000. So almost a million square miles. Another 32,000 were sold to the U.S. in the Gadsden Purchase for a total reduction of more than 55%, or 900,000 square miles. The territories that were annexed were comparable to size in Western Europe, were pretty sparsely populated. They contained about 14,000 peoples for in Alta California, and fewer than 60,000 in Nuevo Mexico, as well as a large Native American nation, such as the Navajo, Hopi, and dozens of others. A few relocated south in Mexico, but the majority chose to remain in the U.S. and later became U.S. citizens. 
American settlers surged in the newly conquered Southwest. And of course, were openly contempt of Mexican law. They thought of it as alien and inferior and threw it out the window. Now they did recognize the value of a few aspects of the laws and carry them over into their new legal systems. For example, most of the southwestern states adopted community property, marital property systems, which have, hadn't been around before in the U.S. And what's that do? Made property owned by both man and wife instead of just the man. Oh, pretty much if uh, the husband dies, now the widow and the kids aren't, you know, completely up a creek. Not only that, but if there was a divorce to happen, it, everything would have to be split. Mm. Even though just his name is on the deed, it's both of theirs because it's communal property once you get married. Right. Now, on the U.S. side, much of the U.S., they looked at the victory and the acquisition of new lands as a surge of patriotism. The victory seemed to fulfill the Democrats' belief in their country's manifest destiny, while the Whigs rejected it as the same thing. And it says that most of the great results of history are brought about by discreditable means. Now, even though the Whigs had opposed the war, they did make Zachary Taylor their presidential candidate <laughs> in 1848. Because they praised his military performance while muting their criticism of the war. I hate you. I hate everything you did. I really don't like it. But as a matter of fact, would you be so kind as to run for president under our ticket? <laughs> exactly. Now, you know Emily Dickinson, right? Yeah, the name rings a bell. She was 16 year old at this time. So she writes her older brother in 1848... And she, we have a quote from her. Would you like to hear it? I'd love to hear it. Quote, has the Mexican War terminated yet? And how? Are we beaten? Do you know of any nation about to besiege South Hadley, which is Massachusetts? If so, do inform me of it, for I would be glad of a chance to escape. If we are to be stormed, I suppose our teacher, Miss Mary Lyon, would furnish us all with daggers and order us to fight for our lives. Emily, what the heck kind of teacher do you have? And why do you think that all the way up there in Massachusetts, you were about to be invaded by the Mexicans? I don't know. Maybe they hadn't gotten to geography yet. Maybe not. I mean, well, she is 16, so then that's high school. But this is 19th century high school. So on the political front... Polk was criticized a month before the end of the war in the House of Representatives and in a amendment to a bill praising Major General Zachary Taylor for a war unnecessary and unconstitutional that was begun by the President of the United States. This criticism was supported by a congressman that you would recognize, Abraham Lincoln. Huh. He played an important role with his spot resolutions, which followed the congressional scrutiny of the war's beginnings, including factual challenges to claims made by the president. Pretty much accusing him of stoking the fires that got people to be on board with the war using false pretenses. 
Yeah. Now, of course, the vote followed party lines, as they normally do, with all the Whigs supporting the amendment. Lincoln's attack on the president got him some lukewarm support from his fellow Whigs in Illinois, but was harshly counterattacked by Democrats, who rallied pro-war sentiments in Illinois. Lincoln's spot resolutions did haunt his future campaigns in the heavily Democratic state and were cited by enemies well into his presidency. So this haunted him for quite a long time. So you do know that this did have effects on the Civil War. Well, I was going to say, this is what put a lot of the uh, major officers on both sides of the war on the map, so to speak, for their... Uh, armed forces careers yes a lot of the military leaders on both sides of the civil war were junior officers in this conflict this includes ulysses s grant george b mclennan ambrose burnside stonewall jackson james longstreet joseph e johnson william t sherman william rosecrans braxton brigg sterling price George Meade, Robert E. Lee, and future Confederate president Jefferson Davis. Grant, he was a young army lieutenant. He actually recalls in his memoirs, quote, Generally, the officers of the army were indifferent whether the annexation was consummated or not. But not so all of them. For myself, I was bitterly opposed to the measure and to this day regard the war, which resulted as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. It was an instance of a republic following the bad example of, of European monarchies and not considering justice in their desire to acquire additional territory. So even the uh, some of the officers involved in the American side were like, yeah, this is pretty much us being imperialist. You know, we have the bigger stick. Yeah, we're pulling a Britain on Mexico. And Grant also thought that this, this conflict brought punishment onto the United States in the form of the Civil War. He said, quote, The Southern Rebellion was largely the outgrowth of the Mexican War. Nations, like individuals, are punished for their transgressions. We got our punishment in the most sanguinary an expensive war of modern times. Huh. Never thought I'd hear a president say that the Civil War was karmic justice. <laughs> so, that is going to be it for our overview of the Mexican-American War. So now, we're going to be getting into the naval battles. So we're going to start with the bombardment of Guaymas. All right. This happened on October 20th of 1847. It was when Captain Ile A.F. La Villette of the first class frigate USS Congress, in company with the sloop USS Portsmouth, forced the Mexican garrison of Guaymas to evacuate the city under the threat of bombardment. They then dismantled the seaward defenses of the city and controlled the city. After that, by threat of bombardment, by a sloop of war that was kept on station at the mouth of the harbor. I mean, behave or we were, we'll blow you to kingdom come is a very persuasive argument. 
Yeah. Uh, this threat did lead to a secret evacuation of the Mexican garrison and artillery at night by the commander there, Colonel Antonio Campuzo. They did bombard the fort and city in the morning after those troops had left. And they took possession and found the city abandoned by its defenders and most of its population. So this is when they decide to, we're just going to dismantle the seaward defenses and just keep a sloop off the coast. They then collect tariff tonnage and duties from ships entering the port. And that's it for this one. That's <laughs> huh. very uneventful. Yeah. That will take us to the Battle of Moulige. So on August 10th, 1847, Commodore William Shebrick resumed his command of the Pacific Squadron. And his first orders upon retaking command was sending the sloop of war USS Dale, no relation, and USS Portsmouth, along with the frigate Congress, to blockade Metzlen, Gameas, and San Blas. When the USS Dale arrives by itself at La Paz in mid-September, the commander of the U.S. Occupation Force there, Lieutenant Colonel Henry S. Burton, persuades the... USS Dale's commander, Thomas O. Selfridge, to go to Loreto and Molege to prevent the landing of supplies from Guaymas and to secure a pledge of neutrality from the inhabitants of that city. So they enter the port on September 30th under British colors. Ah, the good old false flag. They then anchored lowered the British colors and raised the Stars and Stripes. Then a shore party went ashore under a flag of truce and delivered a message to the Mexican emissary. The message is that California's was American territory and this prompted the leader, Alves, a, he made a request for more time to consider this. Craven then seizes the Mexican Navy schooner Magdalia, which had brought Captain Manuel Pina days, which bought him a lot of time before Guaymas. All right. So October 1st rolls around and Commander Selfridge sends a letter to the Mexican authorities telling them to lay down their arms to preserve neutrality and to abstain from contact with the mainland within three hours. And how do they respond? Well, they go back three hours later and they receive their refusal of the ultimatum. So Craven goes back next the next morning and received the actual written rejection. They stated that they refused to be neutral and in and protests the USS Dale's use of British flag to enter the port. Yeah, that is, yeah, kind of shysty. So, you asked what the response was. And at 1400 on the 2nd of October, Lieutenant Craven, with 17 Marines and 57 sailors, landed at the entrance to Mulji Creek. All right. 
and proceeded up the right bank. Just after landing, the USS Dale opened up with her guns. Now, apparently this didn't have very good effect, but still, you got a ship shooting at you. That's not going to be nothing. Right. Even if fire for effect isn't actually getting the effect, it's still shock and awe. Right. Psychological. Now, the American Marines and sailors proceeded to a nearby hill, which had a strong Mexican force there commanding the town. Now, before they got to that hill, a shot was fired from a window from a house that was nearby and also from a thicket to the left of the American column. So Craven dispatches a small force to attack and burn the house while he attacked the thicket. So as they do, they burn the house. And Lieutenant Craven actually didn't find anybody in the thicket. Maybe it was a ghost. Maybe. So the Americans take the hill and the Mexicans retreated beyond the stream and formed several defenses and fired upon the Americans' left flank. So the Americans, they respond with several volleys of fire, which forced the Mexicans to flee up the creek. So the American forces proceed to march to the village at the foot of the hill, and they find it deserted, and then proceed up the river road. Hmm. They were then attacked again by Mexican insurgents, firing from the jungle on the opposite bank, but they responded with a boat gun and drove them off. Yeah, those can be quite persuasive. Right. Now, Craven stopped about three miles from the mouth of the river because night was approaching, and he was like, I'm not going to be out here at night. I'm going back to the boat. <laughs> I'm scared of the dark. I need my Benki. So, Craven, he thought that he had inflicted chastisement to the Mexican forces, while the Mexican re forces reported that the Enemy made off shamefully, having inflicted exemplary punishment. So after the battle, the USS Dale sailed for La Paz with the Mexican boat in tow, reaching there on October 8th. Commander Selfridge charters a small schooner from an American citizen living at La Paz and christened it Libertad and armed it with a nine pound on a pivot. <laughs> <laughs> a nine-pound cannon on a pivot. Hmm, this is a wonderful little pleasure boat you have. I'm going to be taking this. No, he didn't take it. He chartered it. He paid for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, he gave it to LeCraven and assigned him a mission to sever communications between Malege and Guaymas. And then on November 2nd, he captures the sloop Alberta before heading to Guaymas on November 19th. So pretty much what we got here is surrender or die. They did not surrender, so they went in there, drove them out, said, oh, night's falling, went back to the boat and sailed away. I don't see the point in this one. Yeah, this, this seems more like a, uh, they wanted to flex. Yeah. All right, we're going to do one more. That's going to be the bombardment of Punta Sombrero. So after the Battle of Muledge and the christening of the schooner that they chartered, Libertad, mm -hmm. Lieutenant Craven takes command and sets sail north up the Gulf of California. 
Libertad was armed with the one swivel cannon, and then they added like three or four more cannons that they took from one of their captured Mexican boats. Now, her mission was, as we said earlier, to disrupt enemy communications from Malej's garrison to other communities and fortifications. They wanted to isolate that All right. fort or city. Now, there are reports out there that the Mexican population of the coastal towns around there grew terrified of the repeated appearances of Libertad in the waters off their settlements. I mean, if you're not used to seeing military vessels, let alone a civilian vessel you probably were used to seeing now have a cannon on there, yeah. Now, no engagements actually occurred until October 31st when Craven spots a Mexican merchant schooner anchored in Maluge at 2200. Now, what Craven didn't know yet was that this schooner was protected by a artillery battery at the mouth of the anchorage. <laughs> well, this is going to go well. Yeah, on Punta Sombrero with a number of riflemen to guard the battery. So the lieutenant advances his ship and the Mexican batteries, they notice this and they open fire. We have a report from Craven, quote, I heard no sound ashore, but the passing of the sentry's call till about half past 10 o'clock. When, bang, 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 they commenced from every direction. I jumped out of my bed, seized my gun, and fired at the group nearest me, which I could only discern by the flashes of their guns. The Libertad, well armed and prepared for action, immediately abandoned the attempt to capture a prize ship. Instead, she opened fire on the Mexican batteries with her guns, one of which was a pivot gun, the nine-pounder we talked about before. Yeah which was set up in haste just after hostilities commenced. The Mexicans found themselves in a good defensive position that night. So the moon was actually helping the Mexicans. The, the moon was behind the Libertad, which left her silhouetted against the horizon. And this made the ship easier to see, despite this being a night engagement. And Craven orders his men to fire on what appears to be the largest concentration of Mexican forces. Now, Craven did say that the fire from the Mexican position was heavy, very, very heavy. But most of the fire flew over the boat or passed just across the bow. The fighting lasted about two hours. And slowly, the batteries reduced their rate of fire before pretty much being mostly silence. Hmm. Now, after everything was said and done, the Americans found that they had no wounded. No Americans were hurt. Well, that's nice. Yeah, that's really nice. The Libertad itself received only slight damage to her sails and rigging. Now, the Mexican casualties are unknown. Because, you know, it's dark. We cannot see what happened over there. And the Mexicans aren't going to tell them, Jack. Uh, Lieutenant Craven decided not to send a landing party ashore. B 
because, you know, he doesn't know the status of what's over there. Maybe they just ran out of ammunition, but they're still there waiting for them to come ashore so they can blow them all to hell. Yeah. Or maybe they're all slaughtered, but they don't know, and they're not going to chance it. Instead, he proceeds to meet the USS Dale, no relation, off of Guemes, but was too late to participate in the bombardment of Guemes. I'm sure he was very heartbroken about that. Yeah. So that, I think, will be it for today. We're going to get into the rest of the battles next time. How are you feeling, Exo? Well, I'm feeling like this whole Mexican-American war is very army-centric. If uh, one of the naval vessels taking part is somebody's pleasure boat that uh, got a little bit of a stipend in a nine-pound cannon on a loner. Yeah, I mean, it is mostly land. There's like ten, co- ten battles left that the Navy participated in. So, I bet most wars are usually mostly land. Yeah, no, and, and that does make sense. I mean, it's like, sure, you can say this portion of the ocean is ours, but... Who's going to enforce it? Right. It's not until everything becomes more modernized that the sea is more contested. Right. <laughs> but, but we'll be getting into that. Well, and, and, and I was going to say, like, after 1812 until, until World War One, did we really get involved in a war with another naval superpower? Naval superpower? No. But between now and World War One, we have the Civil War, Westward Expansion, I mean, Spanish-American War. Civil War is still eight conflicts out. Holy crap, America, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's 11 between Civil War and World War One. Well, I was going to say maybe the Spanish-American War, though, from what I understand, that was primarily army and then some stuff in pacific islands uh the spanish-american war is the banana wars that's part of the banana wars which has the spanish-american war the negro rebellion the occupation of nicaragua the occupation of haiti and the occupation of the dominican republic that's all part of the banana wars dannon's got to get them cheap bananas yeah but that's, you know, quite a while from now. That's a 2023 problem. Yeah, it, it most definitely is. <laughs> All right. So I think that's going to do it for us today. Anything you want to uh, say before we pull back into fort? Well, folks, before you outfit any military-grade weaponry on your own personal boats, be sure to consult with the... Uh, you know, your local naval official, make sure everything's above board. If you want to email us with questions pertaining to that, or any other questions you might have, you can do so at the U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. You're shaking your head no. I got this right last time. Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Come on, Captain. I didn't do it to you. You did it to you. It's not the, it's just U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us 
and tell the captain he's being a giant jerk face at USN History Pod. You got it. <laughs> and if you guys could do us a favor and leave a review, preferably five stars, what we'll take, whatever review, uh, the more reviews, the more people will see it, and the bigger our crew. Yes, we'd love to graduate from uh, the little sloop to a frigate, and who knows, maybe eventually uh, a battleship. Who knows? Hopefully an aircraft carrier. Maybe a starship. Who knows? We wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye-bye. See you later, folks. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing. Departing.